0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24/7 plus with premiums as low as 0 dollars per month i can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check independence has given me coverage i can count on and they'll do the same for you learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com talk radio
2: 1210 wphd wphdhd HD 3 philadelphia from the cherry hill volvo studios where relationships matter Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
4: Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, I hope you all enjoyed a wonderful Easter and Passover, both beautiful holidays with family and friends. And maybe some of you enjoyed a spring break. Well, friends, this week, our focus is on a very important topic, eating disorders. Eating disorders are characterized by a persistent disturbance of eating that impairs a person's health or psychosocial functioning. And we'll talk about the different forms and how we might recognize symptoms. But it seems as though our U.S. culture displays an obsession with weight loss. Women's magazines often include stories about weight management dieting or how to tighten specific muscle groups models and actors display a level of thinness that's difficult to attain and maintain computer programs alter photographs to make models look thinner some athletes relentlessly pursue a leaner body to enhance performance this preoccupation to lose weight and tying it to self-esteem to, uh, it often extends to maturing adolescence Here to discuss this very important issue with us is Dr. Jean Doak. Dr. Doak is a psychologist, a PhD, and a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. She's also the Clinical Director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders and the Deputy Director of the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Welcome, Jean.
5: Thank you very much, Dr. Ritchie. How are you doing today?
4: I'm great. Thank you. And I'm really uh, very pleased that you're here to discuss this with us because as a gastroenterologist, I see a lot of uh, people, and you're going to talk about this, not just young women, but people of all ages that seem to need help from a specialist like you. So why don't we start with defining an eating disorder?
5: Sure, absolutely. Um, Before going into the various types of eating disorders, I think what we can do is talk a little bit about some broad characterological um, definitions of an eating disorder. Um, Oftentimes, eating disorders do involve some atypical intake of food, whether it's restriction or binge eating. Um, Oftentimes there is some fluctuations in weight status, whether that's a significant amount of weight loss or just even fluctuations in weight loss. And sometimes actually there are no fluctuations in weight. Um, There can be manifestations or presentations of body image concerns. And this is very typical for males or females who struggle with an eating disorder, and the type of body image concerns might be a little bit different depending on whether or not they're male or female identifying. Um, the most problematic aspect that goes along with eating disorders, as you alluded to, is that there can be a significant amount of medical complications that result from the eating disorder behaviors.
4: Mm-hmm. So we had a great conversation the other day and you really enlightened me because I remember studying, um, eating disorders in medical, medical school, but that has changed so much. And to help you as the specialist in psychiatry and psychology, um, assess, define, uh, find a, the right diagnosis, you employ the DSM. Do you want to tell our listeners what that is?
5: Yes, uh, the DSM is short for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders. Basically, it is um, the category or uh, almost like a dictionary of sorts of all mental health disorders, their descriptors, the codes uh, associated with that, and more specifically, the criteria for each of those. Uh, And as we were talking the other day, You know, there have been multiple iterations over time, and certainly since you and I have been in grad school, medical school, and started early in training, um, I've seen multiple iterations since then. And so, right now, we are currently on um, the fifth edition. And so, just as a comparison, the previous edition was DSM-4-TR. It was a revised edition, um, but that edition had three broad categories of eating disorders. Um, The first category was anorexia nervosa. The second category was bulimia nervosa. And then there was this catch-all category that was called eating disorder not otherwise specified. Hmm. And it basically tried to capture the eating disorders that didn't meet full criteria for anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Um, And over time, um, with um, greater clinical indicators and um, more prevalent research, which is what the DSM is based on, there's been an expansion of these eating disorders and a teasing out of that third bucket that was eating disorder not otherwise specified. And so in totality, I believe there's about eight listed in the current DSM-5. So there's greater specificity with the eating disorder characteristics that weren't evident in the previous manual.
4: And that's so helpful for people to hear because, uh, and I'm going to rewind the tape a little bit because again, as a GI doctor, I might see somebody who's lost his or her appetite or if somebody's getting chemotherapy or certain medications or a certain illness like pneumonia you're concentrated on your breathing, you lose your appetite. And the word anorexia is generic, kind of like headache. A headache can be because you've been looking at your computer too long, or maybe you need a new script for your eyeglasses, or maybe you have a brain tumor, God forbid. But I mean, anorexia is a general word that means loss of appetite. Yes. And so I remember saying to a patient recently, um, what sounds like, you know, your husband has anorexia. And she said, Oh, no, no, because she thought I was referring to the abbreviated term anorexia nervosa. So anorexia nervosa suggests that it's a psychiatric disorder and the person needs counseling to understand why they have lost their appetite or they don't want to eat. Is that a fair analysis?
5: Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because the same holds true for bulimia nervosa. And, and we're at fault in the field of just using anorexia because in the field, we know what we're referring to. But as far as you know, patients are concerned, the lay population or even the larger medical field, it's really critical to use both anorexia and nervosa, bulimia and nervosa, because those really are Different disease processes than just anorexia or just bulimia.
4: Mm -hmm. One of the other terms that I saw listed uh, in the DSM 5 list was pica. And Mm -hmm. pica suggests that a person craves uh, eating something that's not a, a recognized food, like starch or chalk in the case of iron deficiency anemia. I've seen that. Not even once a year, but I recently had a patient who was craving ice, craving to the point where she'd be out doing errands and she'd stop at a convenience store just to get a cup of ice. Her children were saying, mom, the crunching is so loud, we can't focus on our homework. And she, in fact, had uh, anemia and uh, you know a serious condition. But it wasn't because of pica, because of a psychiatric issue. Let's Why don't we talk about the different types, Jean, if we could...
5: Sure. Absolutely. And these are going to be pr- very broad um, descriptors because I think to go into each of the criteria for each of the eating disorders is probably maybe another, another discussion for some other time. Um, but for anorexia nervosa, since that was one of the first ones that we were talking about, um, it is an eating disorder that is characterized by weight loss or a lack of appropriate weight gain in growing children and adolescents difficulties maintaining appropriate body weight for height, age, and stature, um, and often is accompanied by distorted body image. Um, And individuals um, who have anorexia nervosa can engage in restrictive eating behaviors. And there are some subtypes associated with each of these disorders that I I probably won't go into too much detail right now. Um, But just to say that anorexia nervosa can present with just restrictive eating patterns or it could present with binge eating and or purging behaviors
4: as well. Boy, that's important. I, I thought that might be a separate issue, but that makes sense that um, mm-hmm. a person might want to enjoy the taste of a meal, but then they worry that those calories will last, and so they they uh, purge well. Wow. Now, how is that different from bulimia yeah. nervosa? Because bulimia is inducing vomiting, Yes.
5: Correct. Uh, Great question. As if on cue. Um, So bulimia nervosa, um, one of the differentiating categories with bulimia nervosa from anorexia nervosa is that with bulimia nervosa, there isn't the restrictive eating pattern per se that's consistent, there's more of a cycle of binge eating behaviors. Um, And so binge eating and compensatory behaviors are the hallmark of what bulimia nervosa um, is defined with. Um, Self-induced vomiting can be a typical compensatory behavior, but there are lots of different types of compensatory behaviors, even over-exercising, the use of diet pills, the use of laxatives. Mm. Um, Those are various types of compensatory behaviors behaviors. And with bulimia nervosa, there isn't the typical weight loss that presents in the same way with anorexia nervosa.
4: So that is so important for our listeners to hear, especially parents who suspect issues with their children or or anybody who's watching a loved one. It does not always include weight loss. And as you mentioned the other day to me, that with binge eating, sometimes people gain weight.
5: Yes. Um, And so with binge eating disorder, it is characterized by um, binge eating episodes. There can be some period of restriction during the day, but the hallmark characteristic with binge eating. Uh, disorder are binge eating episodes and the differentiating factor between binge eating disorder and say bulimia nervosa is that with binge eating disorder there isn't the use of compensatory behaviors to rid themselves of food and so that's an important distinction as well gotcha and
4: i had never heard until you mentioned it um arfid and if and we can take this yes. into the next segment we have about two minutes left but avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that there are certain foods that the person develops an aversion to, or it frightens them? Tell us about that.
5: Yes. Um, So there are three broad categories with ARFID. One is just a complete disinterest in food. And so sometimes that can look like picky eating in childhood. Sometimes it could look as it's a very narrow, restrictive Restrictiveness in variety of foods. Another category would be um, sensory concerns that may limit the different types of food or variety of food intake. And then the third would be a restriction in food intake post a traumatic event, like a significant choking episode or significant involuntary vomiting episode.
4: That makes sense. And-
5: hmm And one differentiating factor here is that there certainly may be some weight loss. The weight loss is incredibly unintended, um, and there isn't any body image concern um, within the context
4: of RFID. That's an important distinction. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, more on eating disorders with Dr. Jean Doak. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by
6: Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note
7: to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
4: Welcome back to your radio doctor. Our topic this week is eating disorders, and we're so happy that Dr. Jean Doak from University of North Carolina is here. Jean, we were learning some very important information about the different types of eating disorders and the broad categories I think will serve us well for today, but I want to repeat the point you made earlier that it's not just in females. I I, I hesitate to use the word female because it makes me feel like a drosophila or something, but, (laughs) you know, women and men and all, but but it's also not just in young people. I think as a medical student, my impression was teenage girls, um, but the average age is more like in your twenties or I guess the other thing I learned from you, I don't mean to run away here, but Mm-hmm. each eating disorder might have a different age uh, spike in the chart. Let's talk about those general topics.
5: Yes. And, you know, the the stereotypical idea of who presents with an eating disorder um, was probably inadvertent and usually, or not usually, historically, that's because those who were documented were those who were well-studied and, you know, research studies and, those who can access being part of a research study were those who had access to an academic institution. So when we think about that historical context, that, that really um, allowed the population to be studied to be those who were younger, those who were predominantly Caucasian, those who were predominantly of a higher SES. And so, you know, there was this thought that that's who really struggled with an eating disorder. Um, But with increased awareness, with increased education, with an expansion of um, clinical um, and research opportunities, we now know that literally anyone can be diagnosed with an eating disorder at almost any age. And so when we say anyone, that would be all races and ethnicities. When we say anyone, it's all genders. Um, all sexual orientation, Um, males, females, those who are trans, those who are gay, like I literally mean everyone. Um, And usually um, as far as the lower age limit, I I, I think with some of our newer eating disorder diagnoses, it's to be determined um, because ARFID is a newer one that can present in younger children, whereas some of the other eating disorders are are more typical in early adolescence rather than childhood. And then there is no upper age limit. Um, So certainly we are seeing individuals, male and female, um, who present into their 60s and may have struggled with an eating disorder their entire life and never knew and were just recently diagnosed or have attempted Um, treatment before, and it's coming back in a different way, or it's a different disorder Mm -hmm. that presents itself later in life.
4: And you mentioned the other day that uh, in some cases, it might rear its ugly head around perimenopause or postmenopause for some women that maybe they uh, struggled with an eating disorder in their adolescent years or even early 20s, and then seem to level off. And then it comes back because uh, menopause can be very challenging for a lot of people. Jean, um, uh, off the uh, things we discussed the other day, it just comes to mind. If you have a child who is a fussy eater and just says, no, I don't want to eat anything green, not broccoli, not Brussels sprout. Um, at what point do you uh, say it's time to see a psychologist and have my child evaluated. Mm
5: -hmm. That's a great question. You know, um, Picky eating is somewhat typical at certain ages, especially in toddlerhood Mm -hmm. as they're being exposed to more and more foods. Um, The point in in which somebody may or should be concerned is when a child is not meeting their developmental or weight trajectory expectations. So, you know, we use growth curves to determine whether or not someone is tracking along what would be expected for their weight based on their age and their height, etc. Um, and so anytime a child starts to fall off of their growth curve, that's when we would 100% be concerned that they certainly need to see their pediatrician to rule out any other medical um, contributing factors. Um, and then subsequently, if they're, if all the medical contributing factors are ruled out and it looks like it might be an eating disorder like ARFID, then certainly a referral to a mental health professional who has expertise in eating disorders would be warranted.
4: So we talk about risks for eating disorders and it would be no surprise if a young person experiences a trauma or some adversity during childhood, like a, you know, a long hospitalization or an accident. Um, What are the other triggers that might uh, lead somebody to an eating disorder
5: yeah when we were talking the other day um, i described eating disorders as biopsychosocial illnesses uh, which means if i break that term down into different components the bio implies or means that there's a genetic component to eating disorders there's a genetic correlation uh, the psychopsychological means that there might be some temperamental or personality characteristics in which there's a correlation, and the social would basically be broken down to our our social environment, our social culture, social media, the things that we're exposed to in our society. So all those um, contributing factors can lead to somebody having an eating disorder. Um, And then if I think about some of those risk factors, um, we do know that for, say for example, for children and adolescents who may be a higher than average weight status, when they are told or recommended that they should engage in dieting behaviors and dieting behaviors at a very young age. That could be a potential risk factor. Um, athletes in performance-based sports—they um, can be at risk for developing an eating disorder because so many sports are, are have specific weight criteria for different classes um, that they may fall into within their sport. Um, also, just in the performance-based sports, there is a high, intense focus on the way the body looks. Uh, and the way it performs based on how it looks, how muscular it is, how large it is, how lean it is, depending on the sport itself.
4: Mm-hmm. And I remember asking you about the um, the category that was formerly called female athlete triad of um, weight loss, abnormal periods or no periods, amenorrhea, um, and maybe... Um, um, fractures, stress fractures, those kinds of things that combined. But now it's called relative energy deficiency because we're seeing it in young men. I mean, you know, I know my own uh all three of my children were rowers and my one son was in the lightweight category. And depending on the weight uh the expectation for that crew race that week, some of the guys would run an extra 10 miles or row an extra 20,000 meters can't be good for you.
5: And, you know, I, yeah. I'm glad you pointed out that the, the name um, of that has changed because it, it really is a... Um you know, conscious decision to um, acknowledge that this type of triad of behaviors can present, or a similar type of triad of behaviors, can present independent of gender, and so it and it probably mm-hmm. even encapsulates what's happening—that there is a relatively relative energy deficiency, and we see that a lot in cross country, gymnastics, figure skating. You indicated rowing, wrestling. Any, any weight in which um, there's a great deal of positive reinforcement for falling into mm-hmm. a weight category um, or trying to fall into a mm-hmm. specific weight category. And sometimes, unfortunately, doing so may be equated to improved performance, but oftentimes it may be related to the perception of perf- improved performance.
4: Mm-hmm. And so when you talked about biopsychosocial, One of the other possible risk factors is family history in terms of biology and heredity or someone who's a perfectionist, which um, you taught me this the other day that being a perfectionist doesn't mean OCD or obsessive compulsive. So um, knowing what you said earlier uh, this evening that sometimes an eating disorder does not include weight loss as a sign, knowing that's the case how whom should we screen if we're not using weight loss as a marker whom should we screen and are the questions different for an adult patient from a child
5: yeah you know um i I shared with you that i think it would be great to screen everybody um and i especially in busy pcp offices that's Um, Not always feasible because PCPs are charged with screening for almost everything. Um, So, you know, um, one of the things that we absolutely know for sure with eating disorders is that you can't tell um, by physical appearance alone that someone has an eating disorder. And so what do you do with that? You ask, and so some of the typical questions do come from evidence-based screeners um, for adults. Uh, one that is used often is the SCOFF, and it's it's a very brief screener, but it could be um, several uh, or a handful of yes or no. Questions that can allow a PCP or primary care physician to determine whether or not there may be risk. Um, and I'll give you some examples of some of these questions. Uh, one is, do you worry that you've lost control over how much you eat? Um, and that can certainly uh, be the case for several eating disorders, not just one. Um, another one is, have you recently lost more than 15 pounds in a three month period? Or do you think you are fat even though others say that you are too thin? Would you say that food dominates your life, or do you throw up? Um, do you make yourself throw up because you feel uncomfortably full? And so, um, part of my role within the national, um, uh, the center, of, the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders, which is a, a grant-based program, is that we developed uh, something called ESPERT which is a screening tool um, for providers to be able to use. Um, and ESPERT is Screen Brief Intervention and Referral to Treatment for Eating Disorders. So ESPERT for Eating Disorders. Um, and you can easily Google that and it'll take you to an online tool. Um, And ideally, it would be great even if the PCP doesn't have time to ask those questions themselves, if that could be done um, on an iPad or computer while the patient is waiting for uh, the PCP. So in between the nurse coming in and the primary care physician. So that's a quick um, way and the nice thing about that tool is it um, based on response, it'll categorize people into low, medium or high risk. And and it'll also provide referral options. So at least the patient can leave the office with information that day.
4: That's fantastic. And as you say, now that a few decades have passed, that um, mental health care providers have been able to collect more and more data. If you can fine tune, even if you pick up 50% of the patients that need your help, it's a big plus. And and I think too, what listeners need to hear, and we'll repeat this, is that if a patient has lost a lot of weight, the severity of their condition does not always suggest how long they've been troubled because eating uh, uh, disorders are associated with guilt and shame. And you'll see a young woman who's lost weight and they wear sweat clothes. They wear big blousy clothes to because they they these disorders flourish in secrecy and isolation and with that we'll take a little break and be right back now, you're a real a and now for your real champion i call this segment tennis racket science not rocket science Lots of kids dream about turning their favorite sport or hobby into a lifetime profession. Well, here's one man who did. Stockton Mars grew up in a family that loved the game of tennis. He began playing as a child and played lots of tennis, going through several rackets, plenty of sneakers, and three serious shoulder injuries. Like other kids, he wanted to eat, sleep, and play his favorite sport. Unlike other kids, Stocky had to deal with a little challenge. At the age of 20 months, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Now, when you hear the word diabetes, understand it's more than limiting your sweets and carbs. It's a way of life. Finger sticks to check your sugar level even before leaving for school, then taking it multiple times through the day. It means missing school, friends, sports, to be admitted to the hospital when a simple virus or infection makes your sugar skyrocket and throws your acid base into turmoil. That's called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, which can be life-threatening. But Stocky is a focused, busy man and says, there's no time for complaining. Nobody is dealt the perfect hand. In fact, he never felt limited. At a birthday party, someone would say, sorry, you can't have cake. And Stocky would want to say, read a textbook. I can have cake. I just have to adjust my insulin. Instead, he just says, I got it covered. Stocky has a CGM and insulin pump. These are small, convenient devices implanted under the skin on the abdomen. The CGM or constant glucose monitor shows what your blood sugar level is at any moment. Then you adjust how much insulin the pump delivers right into your bloodstream. You calculate the insulin based on your activity level and what you're eating. What was once considered high-tech is now a mainstay of therapy. The pump doesn't cure diabetes, but it helps to avoid big fluctuations in your blood sugar, especially the very low ones, which can be dangerous. Now in his early 30s, he's had an insulin pump since the age of 8. My pump is my pancreas. Luckily, I don't have a sweet tooth, but if I want a piece of cake, or if my glucose is already slightly elevated, I calculate what I need. Through the years, he's also shared his time with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Stocky's love of tennis extends beyond playing the game. At age 13, he began working at a nearby tennis store and was mentored by a tennis racket expert. By age 18, Stocky was attending seminars and workshops in Florida. He became so proficient at stringing rackets, perfect alignment of the strings, location of knots, and the right amount of tension, that by age 23, he won the national competition for tennis racket stringing. He caught the eye of Wilson Sporting Good Company, and they brought him to the U.S. Open. Still with Wilson Sporting Goods, Stocky is the expert whom all the professionals count on. He could string a racket with tour quality in 11 minutes and 8 seconds. His grasp of technology provides the physics for the player's perfect swing with power, speed, and spin. Our newsletter shows a picture of Stocky stringing the racket of Rafael Nadal from Spain, ranked as one of the best in the world. His favorites are the U.S. Open and the Roland Garros, the French Open, but he provides his magic to close to 20 tournaments a year, including college matches. He's about to move to Sarasota to join the staff at IMG Academy, a college prep school that trains tennis pro hopefuls. In the early days, strings in a racket were made from animals' intestines for resilience and strength. Living with a chronic illness like type 1 diabetes can be a full-time job in itself. And like those strong and dependable strings, Stocky Mars has guts. We salute you, Stocky Mars, your real champion.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education
1: on demand. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
6: When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. questions
2: you. Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Now Saturday afternoons at 5. Presented exclusively by
4: Independence Blue Cross.
0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC.
4: Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Our guest is Dr. Jean Doak from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Jean, as a psychologist, you have probably seen so many people, different ages. So they come to you already... Either they've already been diagnosed or there's the suspicion there. So we're going to talk about some of the signs and symptoms that a primary care doctor should look for or a nurse practitioner. But we want to revisit what we've just ended our last segment with, the shame, the guilt. Let's talk about how important for a parent or loved one, if they don't pick up an eating disorder right away, it's not your fault. Let's talk about that a little.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what we do know um, is that eating disorders really do flourish in secrecy. Um, There is a lot of guilt and shame associated with eating disorders. And what we also find as well uh, clinically, patients who have eating disorders don't often refer themselves to their primary care physician for an eating disorder. Um, They may present or um, identify that they have GI distress, or maybe they feel like um, their eating is a little out of control, but they don't necessarily equate that with an eating disorder. And so it's one of the reasons why we really encourage people to ask those questions, to screen, even when in doubt, even when things aren't really adding up to quote unquote look like an eating disorder because what we hear from patients once they actually uh, are seen in our clinic is they are so relieved that somebody asked the question or they're so relieved that somebody identified it. And sometimes patients don't even realize that is what they're struggling with.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about some of the physical signs, but uh, again, as a GI doc, I see, especially as a woman, um, young people sometimes come to me and um, and they'll talk about excruciating belly pain. And we really go through the, the history. It's always in the history. When does the pain happen? Is it happen before you eat? Does eating make it better or worse? Does it wake you from a sound sleep, all those things? And so often, several times a year, I'll speak to a young gal or fella, and they'll say maybe a half hour after they eat. And if they've been purging, um, Your GI tract is set up to be I-95 and we want all the traffic to go from north to south. And if you force it to go south to north, if you force yourself to get sick, you're going to confuse the nerve endings that control the traffic direction and people end up with a change in motility, which we call what you know gastroparesis or a slowly emptying stomach. So you put the meal in and it doesn't move forward. And then the stomach's trying to bench press to send the food out and they get horrible pain. So these young people get upper endoscopy, colonoscopy, CAT scans, it's all normal. As a GI Josephine, I know then, all right, I have to check a motility study called gastric emptying and there it is, slow mo, slow emptying. And these poor people, and and sometimes it's not reversible. So what are some of the other physical findings that um, primary care docs should look for?
5: I'm glad you brought up the GI workup. It is not uncommon that we get referred patients who've had a complete workup and the workup is unremarkable, um, which then leads to referral to our clinic to rule out an eating disorder. Um, so there, there are some physical signs and symptoms um, unique to the specific eating disorder. So for example, with anorexia nervosa, because it does present with um, some weight gain and a oh, excuse me, weight loss. And that's independent of where they started pre-morbidly. And what I mean by that is that some, uh, there's a stereotypical perception that individuals with anorexia nervosa may look cactic or malnourished, and that, that can be true. Um, but there are many individuals who are diagnosed with something called atypical anorexia nervosa who may have started pre-morbidly at a higher than average weight status, Lost a significant amount of weight are still in a normal weight range, normal air quotes, normal weight range, but their body is acting malnourished. And so, what we mean by acting malnourished is we use vital signs as medical markers. And so, there could be a presentation of low heart rate, uh, orthostatic vitals. So, there could be some dizziness, um, syncope episodes. There could be uh, low temperature, so they could be hypothermic, Mm. bradycardic, as I mentioned earlier. Um, And then for females who are still having menstrual periods, there can also be a loss of menstruation. Not always, but there can be.
4: And I think it's interesting, and maybe it refers back to the relative energy deficiency, that in some young men you find low testosterone levels.
5: Correct. And that's not a typical lab um, that providers would often get. Um, but sometimes, when there is a panel of labs that's being done, and a male is presenting um, for that panel, we we will find that testosterone is low in a similar way that estrogen can be low in females.
4: Mm-hmm. And my friends who are dentists say sometimes they notice that in a young person's exam, the inside, the enamel on the inside surface of the teeth is eroding because mm-hmm. if somebody's vomiting the acid and the bicarb can destroy that enamel. So we have to keep our eyes open. So what's interesting is in a room filled with a hundred adolescent girls, they're all exposed to the magazines and the horrible social media. I mean, social media has its positives, but the negatives are, uh, we still don't know all the ripples. I'm sure as a psychologist, you see that. Why do some fall prey to those triggers and others don't? I guess that's what you said, the Biopsychosocial. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because although, you know, with your example, all hundred of them may be exposed to the exact same social media information, not all of them um, will be diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and with the, with the genetic factors, I, I failed to mention earlier is that, you know, with the genetic correlation, it doesn't have to necessarily be a family history of an eating disorder, although that is a higher one. It can also be a family history of any mental health disorder mm. like anxiety or depression.
4: Mm-hmm. So the other uh, idea, I guess, is it's probably not a good idea to use the word dieting around young people and children. And I love what you said the other day about no food is bad. I mean, life is a balance. You have to, you have, to have a little sugar, you have to have pro- Tell us about that thinking because that's yeah. important for people to hear. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, unfortunately in our culture, we've um, placed judgment on foods and we've identified some foods as good foods and some foods as bad foods. We're gonna have cheat days, we're gonna have good days, et cetera philosophically, we just say all food is good food. All, all there is no such thing as bad food Mm -hmm. or or good food. All, well, there's good food. All, all food is good. Um, but the key is really everything in moderation. Um, so I was mentioning to you the other day, I would never recommend that somebody have a salad every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Mm -hmm. nor would I recommend somebody have a hamburger every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but having each of those on occasion throughout the week is fine. Um, that, no judgment there whatsoever well you say so you,
4: you bring up a, another great point you're just a walking encyclopedia but um i hear people people come to me and say my belly's been acting up so i erased all gluten and i'll say mm. why because mm-hmm. if you eat gluten-free foods you have to be under the direction you should be directed by a dietitian and a gi or your doctor because a lot of the gluten-free foods are not fortified with by in other words if it, when I, again, as I see a patient, I have to rule out the physical causes for the belly pain or even weight loss from celiac. Celiac suggests that part of your sponge, part of your small intestine is not absorbing calories, calcium, iron. So those people become iron deficient. Those people can get weak bones, etc. So it's an algorithm we have to follow. And if somebody just elects to put themselves on a gluten-free diet, Um, They could be hurting themselves, especially if they don't have to give those things up. So I I love that you said that. Yeah. We mm -hmm. see a lot of people use
5: Dr. Google um, or Dr. Mm -hmm. TikTok instead of their actual physician to get that medical advice.
4: So can we prevent eating disorders? And if so, how can Mm -hmm. we?
5: That is a great question. And I will say the research on prevention is probably in its infancy. But one of the things that we do know from a treatment perspective that can be implemented earlier would be examples such as um, having family meals at, at home. Um, that is significant. And, you know, you and I both have had children and children in sports or all sorts of various activities. And during those high school years, it's not always feasible. But if you can continue to have family meals, just some frequency throughout the week, that's really critical. Again, um, removing any kind of judgment associated with food, um, offering food with all sorts of variety, no good food, no bad food. And also too, um, not modeling dieting behaviors. Um, Parents not modeling negative body image self-talk that happens a lot and that's not to say that parents are causes of eating disorders i'm not saying that at all but kids are masterful at picking up on these kinds of cues and they're masterful at identifying oh this must be normalized because i see it often enough so i used to
4: have i had a friend and i and i heard her a couple times say to her teenage daughter wow those pants look great on you they make you look thin Mm -hmm. and i thought Oh yes, exactly. I mean, we've all said things we shouldn't, but I—I yes. I heard her say it a couple of times. I didn't say anything, but I thought, uh, depending on all the factors you talked about, that could really stir that young girl into yeah. not good behavior. And it's just
5: you know, seemingly perceived as an as an intended compliment.
4: Um, yeah, there
5: are these subtle messages that get inlaid
4: So I know, Gene, if a diagnosis is made. There are various levels of treatment. Let's talk about that. We have a couple minutes left.
5: Sure. Uh, they range from the lowest level of care, which is outpatient. That's about um, meeting with uh, a therapist, a physician, or, and or a dietitian one time a week. Uh, the next intense level up would be intensive outpatient treatment. And that ranges anywhere between three to five hours a day, three to five days a week. The next level of intensity up would be partial hospitalization, which is about eight hours a day, um, mm-hmm. at least five days a week. Then there's residential treatment, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and most often for individuals who um, do not have medical acuity or medical acuity that would warrant inpatient, which is the highest level of
4: care. Mm-hmm. So that highest level of care might be somebody who's been vomiting and they have low potassium or they're dehydrated and they need that yes. as well. And you know, yes. I want to revisit. Um, it must be comforting when a, when a person finally can talk about. You know, you say, "Don't be afraid to ask." Is there something about you know, if you're not using scoff, and that was that was the uh, series for adults. That scoff, I guess, is S C O F F. Are you feeling sick? Control over you know the food dominate your life. Um, maybe there are other ways you can approach it. Like, are are you do you ever eat in secret or does your weight affect how you feel about yourself? Quick question with COVID everyone changed their habits in some way or other. Either they were working in a hybrid setting or everyone changed their habits because we were all forced to. Yes, COVID definitely. We saw a big spike in, in mental health issues. Would you say that was a, not because of the anxiety, but just because we were trapped and people were maybe eating because it was a vacation to walk away from your computer. Let's take a little break and I'll let you answer that on our, but we wrap up.
0: Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
3: Hi, I'm Pete Vernig, Vice President of Clinical Services for Recovery Centers of America and one of your drug and alcohol experts from RCA. Today I'm here to talk to you about National Alcohol Awareness Month. April is National Alcohol Awareness Month, a time dedicated to raising awareness about the dangers of alcohol misuse. Did you know that alcohol is the most commonly used drug in the world? According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, alcohol use disorder affects approximately 15 million adults in the United States. An estimated 140,000 deaths are attributed to alcohol-related causes each year, and alcohol is used by young people in the United States more often than tobacco or illicit drugs. This makes alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death in our country. The goal of Alcohol Awareness Month is to encourage people to understand the impact of alcohol misuse and seek help before it becomes fatal. If you or one of your loved ones needs help with alcohol or drugs, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit That's rcom We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7
7: independence blue cross we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life from premiums as low as zero dollars per month to health discounts and cash rewards it pays to have coverage with independence with the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24 7 virtual doctor visits you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com
2: now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems.
4: Welcome back to your final segment of Your Radio Doctor for our wrap-up segment called Your Weekly Prescription brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Gene Doke, you have enlightened us in so many ways. I wanted to revisit quickly because I know you have take-home messages. The COVID effect on enhancing, uh, the likelihood of eating disorders.
5: Yeah. And as you mentioned, um, certainly there's been an exacerbation or maybe even a revealing of um, increased mental health Mm. diagnoses. um, And especially with children and adolescents, this is particularly important. Um, And with eating disorders, we saw no different. In our clinic, we've seen a 33 to 45% increase in referral rates. And that's for our outpatient and our inpatient levels of care. So it's been quite remarkable. Um, There are a couple of contributing factors. As we, you and I mentioned earlier, eating disorders really flourish in secrecy and isolation. What was COVID? COVID Mm. put us in isolation. And so it was a great, great opportunity for eating disorders, even if they were smoldering before, um, to really come to life in a way that was really problematic. Um, And the other thing is that for those who were in treatment, Um, early COVID took people out of their support network. um, So they weren't able to attend support groups. They weren't able to access their support network in the same way or share meals with supportive friends and families. And so it really thrust them back a great deal.
4: So for our listeners, what are your take home messages, Jean? Yeah, uh,
5: there are a few, you know, people always say, well, what do you want everybody to know? There there are a couple things. There are quite a few things I want everybody to know, but um, in no particular order, I want people to know that eating disorders are medical illnesses, and they have the second highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders behind opioid use. Um, They used to be the highest, and that was before opioid opioid use um, bypassed them. Um, So they are significant and serious. Um, it can be fatal, as I mentioned. Eating disorders can affect anyone, as we talked about earlier. Um, you can't tell if someone has an eating disorder just by looking at them. Really use a lot of the points that we talked about today to help you discern, um, you know, your ability to ask questions to find out if somebody's struggling with an eating disorders. Um, Family members can be a patient's best ally in treatment. I think there's an old stereotype that family members are um, the enemy, uh, and they're not. They can be wonderful allies in treatment. And it is absolutely possible to recover from an eating disorder. There are great evidence-based effective treatments on board. And the key is early identification, early diagnosis, and early referral Mm -hmm. to
4: treatment. And I also love that you mentioned the idea of family dinners, I mean, in the ideal world, June Cleveland would have us all sit down at the same time and, and that's not always possible and, and learning flexibility is important too, but at that dinner table, you say, "How was school today?" And you can see if that little face lights up or if they just stir their mashed potatoes. You can learn so much about your children mm-hmm. at the dinner table, how they, if they start to fuss with their brothers and sisters, all those things so important. Gene, how about a website that people Absolutely. might visit to learn more?
5: Yeah, I okay. have four for you. Um, and I, I one of them I'm going to have mm-hmm. to spell out. Um, sure. I hope that's okay. Um, it's ncus.org. So it's n-c-e-e-d-u-s.org. The next one is NEDA, N-E-D-A. That stands for the National Eating Disorders Association. The next one is FEAST, F-E-A. A S T it's families empowered, um, against and supporting treatment. Um, and then the next one is the Alliance for eating disorders.
4: And you know what, Jean, we'll post all of these in our newsletter. Um, and we'll post all of them on our website so people can have these great resources because, um, I've learned so much just from listening to you today, and I I know that mothers and family members out there really sometimes struggle with feeling like they missed the signs or knowing how to get the conversation started. So this has been wonderful and these yes. are great resources.
5: For FEAST. I, I misrepresented a, a little bit of that acronym. It's Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment for Eating Disorders. I think that was just an important
4: clarification yes. I wanted yes. to make before we end Okay, it. beautiful. Again, Dr. Jean Doak, thank you so much for coming all the way from University of North Carolina <laughs> to join us <laughs> thank today. Thank you for having and me. And I might just have to visit you someday because I would love to visit North Carolina Thank you. You've oh, helped so many people. You may not go back. I, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> Thank you. You've helped so many people today, Jean.
5: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
4: Thank you for listening to your radio doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to this show again, The Real Champion, or any of our shows on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y or wherever you find your podcasts. We should give a shout out to Uncle Sam. It is April 15th, which is usually the deadline for taxes, but looks like we have an extension this year till Tuesday, April 18th. So when you close the envelope, seal it with a kiss. April is a month inviting awareness of so many great causes, including Parkinson's disease. In fact, we have a great show lined up for next Saturday about Parkinson's disease. April is also a time to be aware of testicular cancer, Esophageal cancer, sarcoidosis, and other issues like stress awareness, paralyzed veterans, prevention of cruelty to animals, Earth Month. So go online and see where you can help. Lots of good people need your help to do their good work. Thank you very much to our super sponsors, Independence Blue Cross, Recovery Centers of America, and Genentech. We truly appreciate your support. Please follow us on social media. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions
1: of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's
0: program has been pre recorded.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.